This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. TV podcast, the unofficial podcast of the TV show Gotham. I'm Derek, one of your hosts. Hi, and I'm John, your other host. And in this episode, we talk about episode three of Gotham, Balloon Man. Um, yeah, how are you this week, John? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Um, recovered from the travels and excitement and um, music-like festivalness of New York Comic Con, um, which is great. Um, and I see the nerd cold is gone. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Breathing easy and feeling good. So, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I guess we'll start off with the news for this week, as usual. Yeah, so in Gotham news then this week, uh, Marina Bacon who many will remember as Inara from Joss Whedon's Firefly and Serenity. She also played um, Anna in the updated version of V from the 80s alien uh, fest and attack into uh, of planet Earth, the infamous hamster scene was it? or <laughs> gerbil scene. Well, yeah, yeah. The um, updated, updated version was a little bit more... Um measured really throughout yes. its two seasons um, um and then also most recently in her emmy award-winning role as nicholas Brody's wife jessica on homeland and she has joined gotham and she is going to be playing a character called dr leslie tompkins on on the show and potentially is a love interest for Jim Gordon. Mm, potentially, yeah, yeah. Um, but really excited to see Marina Bacaran join the show. I'm a huge, uh, huge fan of Serenity and huge fan of Joss Whedon stuff like Firefly. So uh, I've known her right back since then, and you know, all the way through V, watched every episode of that, and then uh, and then Homeland also was was a fantastic show, at least for the first three seasons, and uh, loved her performance on that. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does in the show. She's a lot younger than the character of Leslie Tompkins that that we would know from the comic books. She's uh, Leslie Tompkins is kind of a helper of, of Batman and. Uh, uh, in in the comic books, a much much older character, but it would make sense, you know, if there's another eighteen years to go before Batman arrives, or you know, even fifteen years to go before Batman arrives, then Marina Bacaran's going to be quite. Uh, She's going to be younger. It's fitting yeah. into that timeline that, to be honest, has got to be one of the big considerations for any casting or introduction of characters. Is do you play them as everyone already knows them, or do you play them? Uh, a younger version, look at their backstory, look at their origins, and um, because of the whole um, show's premise, which is Gotham before the Batman, and Absolutely. having young Bruce Wayne. And to be honest with you, regardless of what she looks like in the comic books, getting an actress like Marina Baccarin on the show is, uh, is exciting enough as it is, so I don't really mind uh, that they've changed the character slightly just from that point of view. Absolutely. I mean, I'm pretty excited by um, Marina Baccarin coming in, uh, to be honest, because it's a, another great actress from TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, like yourself, I really like her. I've liked the stuff she's done previously. You know, it's sci-fi stuff um, or it's political drama. So I'm really 
up on that. I've loved it in those shows that I mentioned there just just before. Yeah, excellent. And a bit of DC Connected Universe news. Uh, this is the big week in the UK for uh, for DC Connected shows. We've got Flash premiering on the 28th of October uh, on Sky One, and we've also got Arrow returning this week um, on, the tw- on the 30th of October. On Sky One on as Sky- well. On Sky One as well, yes. Yeah, so those are, those are the two premieres of, the, of the, the, I suppose, the big CW shows from the States uh, are both being shown on the same channel over here. Exactly. And then last Friday, 24th of October, Constantine premieres uh, on NBC in the USA, and then we'll be every Friday uh, following on there, just uh, before Grimm. Mm-hmm. Just after Grimm. Or just after Grimm, I should say, yeah. yeah. And um, and Constantine will then also exclusively be available on Amazon Prime Instant Video in the UK. Uh, this service isn't really available to people outside of the UK, um, so for ourselves here in Ireland, we're unable to avail of it, even though we would generally go through Amazon.co.uk to to purchase stuff on Amazon. But this particular um, service on Amazon, presumably because of rights and, and all that, um, is only available for those in the UK. And so we really have to just wait for any announcement uh, about who might pick up this show for Ireland. Yeah, as we mentioned last week, we're not actually going to be covering um, Constantine because we know it's not available on release outside of outside of the UK. We do know now that it's it's available in the UK. So if you're lucky enough to get it, definitely watch it. We've seen the pilot in, in the US, and uh, it is it is really really good, well worth watching. Uh, as we mentioned last week, and at the moment we're putting up some interviews with the cast that we did at uh, New York Comic Con. We're putting them up on our website. So uh, go to the usual uh, usual address, GothamTVPodcast.com, and have a check out in those interviews. Yeah, we were lucky enough that uh, as part of the roundtables for the the Gotham cast and creators, that it was um, we were asked whether we would like to also be involved with the roundtable interviews for the cast and creator that attended uh, NYCC for Constantine. So that's obviously Matt Ryan, Angelica uh, Salea, and then David Escoya. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, so good. some good interviews. Just, uh, just finishing off the finishing touches on them, but uh, Matt Ryan's gone up uh, already and we should have uh, Angelica and David up pretty soon. So check out those interviews. Really good. And the show itself, as I said, really, really good. Um, we'd be expecting that because the Amazon Prime Instant uh, rights in the UK are uh, are are exclusive for them. Uh, that no other channel in the UK will be getting it until Amazon have finished broadcasting it. Um, so that will be that will be probably early next year. But there is a potential that one that an Irish station could be broadcasting it for us. So we may get we may get uh, coverage of it sometime in twenty fifteen. Absolutely, and it's also just to point out that the. Episodes go up on Amazon Prime literally the day after they've heard in the US as That's well. That's right. Lucky things. Lucky things. Might have to move back to the UK, John. <laughs> <laughs> have to take a ship back and forth. Yeah. Of course, I mean a boat, not a ship. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that, that's pretty much it for the news. Uh, I think we're on to the review of Balloon Man. <laughs> Nice. Do you want to give us a rundown of Balloon Man? Yeah, so episode three of Gotham is entitled Balloon Man. And in this episode, an unknown disillusioned Gothamite turns vigilante, picking off and killing high-profile corrupt public figures. 
Both Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock are asked to investigate the Balloon Man case, as it's known, because his signature kill is to cuff the victims to weather balloons, sending them high up into the stratosphere to a frozen and pretty gruesome death. Mm. In the meantime, Oswald Cobblepot has now returned back to Gotham and sees his opportunity to reassert himself in Gotham through the Moroni's family empire as they are in competition with the Falcone family. All the while, Jim Gordon's lie surrounding Oswald and Oswald's death is beginning to tighten around him as the MCU, as well as other people much closer to him, start to ask uncomfortable questions. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, t- so quite a bit in this episode, really. Um, kind of overall, myself, uh, impressions of it, it's all right. Um, not a, not a, not the best of the three episodes so far. But I'll go into kind of my reason behind that, and uh, as we discussed through the episode itself, uh, interesting to see a vigilante in uh, in Gotham this early. Yeah, I mean, my initial thoughts, I think, really, and I suppose we will ultimately go into them a bit more in detail, is that <clears throat> this seemed to be kind of a trying to go for a much lighter approach um to the case that was involved mm. and you know obviously people being strapped to a, a balloon um has a comic or comedic element i mean to it um it's a bit lighter and certainly there was a, a much sort of lighter or comedic element between um some of the scenes with Jim and Harvey Bullock in them. Yeah. And to me, it seemed to be a lighter episode. I'm not going to say it's evoking Batman 66 or something like that, not to that level, but it was trying to maybe say that this universe can have funny elements, funny moments, be comedic. It's not just simply all the dark tones and the seriousness. Having said that, there were quite dark and serious elements to this episode. And I think my main issue was that whether they fully um, worked together I don't know whether it came off, whether they were able to pull that off I don't know, for me I still think there's some really good points from the serialised elements of the storyline here. Yeah, no I agree um, we introduced one of the great points from uh, from the serialised part with the opening of the episode with Oswald as he arrives back in town which is which is a really good uh, a really good scene uh, to begin the episode as a good establishing shot of Gotham and basically the criminality that's all around everywhere you go he steps off the bus and around him you've got kids pickpocketing the guy you've got cop extorting money obviously from someone on the street exactly. you've got a handbag being snatched and then you've got prostitutes all around them in the middle of the day in Gotham. You know, a typical home uh, homecoming for Oswald Cobblepot. And he's just this smile as he's looking around. It's almost like a, a child in a sweet shop or a candy store kind of going, oh, this is exactly where I want to be. Yeah. This is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and this smile that he's sort of returning home. Yeah, it's um, kind of like if you've missed the first two episodes, yeah. this is what we discovered about Gotham. It's riddled with crime. <laughs> so I like that. I thought that was thought that was a good little opening scene. And then there's a kind of little, um, I suppose, narrative trope that's used throughout this episode where on top of, I think it's a bin on the street by one of the uh, street food sellers, and there's a TV, it's plugged in wherever it might be. Somehow. Maybe, um, it's, battery, maybe it's battery repaired. And, you know, it's got breaking news, and it, this very evocative of Gotham Central, this notion of using 
the news to bring the audience very quickly up to speed on the narrative and it immediately tells of um this uh public figure a financier a banker ronald danzier who has been ripping off old people and bus drivers you know and other people uh within the city um of their their money yeah yeah but it's essentially creating pension schemes that he's ripping the money out of um and he becomes the first victim of the balloon man a guy in a pig mask walks up to him in the street and offers to give him a balloon, which must have looked pretty weird to the guy. Um, but then he gets handcuffed to a weather balloon that takes him off into the air. Yeah. Uh, so we're introduced to the balloon man and mm-hmm. his way of dealing with these corrupt public officials. Absolutely. And for me, this scene is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really didn't like it. Um, it's Obviously, doing something like this, where you've got a guy flying up you know, 60, 70 stories to clear buildings... Um, it's clearly not going to be done in real time. It's clearly going to be done by CGI. But it was so noticeable that this was that this was something that was done on a blue screen, um, and this guy's being lifted off, you know, a couple of feet off the ground and superimposed above buildings. Like you know, he's completely out of proportion to the buildings when he's above them. Um, it just felt just took me out of it completely. And I think that probably it was probably the idea that most people are going to be laughing through the scene. Maybe they were, maybe that's what they were thinking. So they're not going to spend as much time as they possibly should have on it. I just didn't, I wasn't, per, wasn't personally very happy with the scene. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I just thought, well, in a universe that can be heightened, like Gotham, that this could be a way of dealing with um, corrupt public figures, a mm-hmm. way of killing people. I mean, it would never happen in reality, but this, to an extent, is a heightened version of reality. So... That certainly it, is it's well, exactly. 700 feet in the sky <laughs> I mean for me I kind of was glad it was a weather balloon even though it's probably not physically possible for a weather balloon to to take a person uh, up into the stratosphere yeah I had to check it out just after the episode I did <laughs> I did check it out a weather balloon apparently would never ever be able to, ca- to carry someone of this kind of weight of just an average person's weight is about 200 pounds you'd need 28 weather balloons to lift up a person um, well, I had to check it out. But then so my point really would be that I was glad it was a weather balloon because that does seem more realistic mm-hmm. than maybe 50-odd helium-filled balloons taking someone up. And that's what I thought it might be. So I was kind of quite pleased that it was a weather balloon. I think for me, I just got a lot of flashbacks to the my Professor Pig fetish because the guy was in a pig mask and I was suddenly thinking, well, Professor Pig's not supposed to be a vigilante, um, but there's a lot of pig references um, going on, I think, <laughs> in the first three episodes. Yeah. And this was another one with a pig mask and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe we need to have Professor Pig watch rather than <laughs> Joker watch. Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, I definitely think that the creators of the show are just messing with you at this stage because uh, when they released this image, I think this image from the Balloon Man was released sometime in about July or June uh, of this year. And I think from then on, um, everybody's been speculating Professor Pig's in the show. And it turns out it's just a guy who's using a, using a mask to cover his face and it seems to be relatively random. Um, I would kind of have also been one of the things that came into my head when I heard that the name of the show Balloon Man, and I heard it was going to be about a vigilante. I was hoping it was going to involve the um, the uh, full-on zeppelins that are in the sky over the city. I thought it might involve those. They'd definitely be able to drag a human exactly. body with them. You know? Yeah, and essentially suspend them up, out of reach, out of sight, mm-hmm. um, and where they essentially slowly 
starve freeze. to death, freeze, mm-hmm. you know, uh, suffer from exposure. Um, and I agree. I think the use of the sort of zeppelins floating above Gotham, as we've gotten in the promotional material, would have been a really uh, good way of doing it. One of these elements, though, that I suppose we need to ask ourselves as well is that this is part of what I said before about, you know, it's kind of a lighter hearted or a lighter touch to it and, and a lighter approach to Gotham and the world of Batman. And I suppose there's always been that argument of whether, um, you know, it has gone down a very serious uh, narrative driven route. And maybe this was to try and bring a lighter element or at least to investigate the appeal of that within a 22-episode show. So I didn't mind it so much. Um, For me, it was whether they introduced a vigilante too soon as well. Absolutely. Uh, Whether it was all a bit too quick to introduce the concept of vigilante uh, and of vigilantes. I think it could have been done in season one. Whether episode three was the right kind of timing, I don't know. Or whether... Um, it could have been drawn out more over the season, this particular um, vigilante. Who knows? Yep. Yeah, like we're only three episodes into the show. I'm, I don't want to be hugely critical about this. There are some great elements of the show itself, but I just think this opening scene just before the credits is definitely the weakest of the three so far uh, for me. Um, I just I just felt, you know, regardless of the actual overarching idea of the episode and what they were trying to do with it, I just felt the actual scene itself was was just poorly done but it moves into the investigation of the case again with with jim and harvey and this has essentially been the trope for the last two weeks of episodes where a murder happens at the beginning and then it goes on to the investigation of it, uh, of the case itself with jim and harvey yeah and it's this whole notion then that ronald danzia the guy floating up into um outer space essentially has deserves it and you know very much get that sense from harvey bullock that this guy he ripped off um people in the city he is undeserving of anyone's kind of forgiveness or sympathy in what's ha- just happened to him, which is pretty brutal. And mm. um, in the same way as with Mario Pepper from the the first episode, it's all coming back to this notion that there are people that deserve some of these things and whether the police should even be attempting to try and resolve and investigate these is a, another aspect entirely. But... What we then come to is this great little line where they've started on this new case for Balloon Man. Jim has requested that Selina Kyle be brought to him to essentially reopen the Thomas and Martha Wayne case. Mm. And Harvey Bullock is there. You know, what about closed cases? Don't you understand? Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, we're trying to get these knocked off one by one. Why you keep on and, and insist on going back to them and I, I love this kind of this element of tension that comes in between the two characters for this week that adds that other layer yeah it's something we mentioned last week that it's very much jim wants to solve cases harvey wants to close them so that he can go home at the end of the day essentially he's he's just looking for you know he's just looking for someone that's that, that he can pin it on rather than the actual person he doesn't really care if it's the right person or not um, I partially agree with them about Ronald Dancer coming from a country like ours, uh, where, well, where exactly. many people <laughs> lost their homes and lost their their life savings because of this guy, because of people like this guy, and his specific comment where he doesn't care, and um, he just wants to get it over with, pay off everybody that uh, that's involved, anybody on the jury, the, the judge, pay them all off so he can get off with the case. 
you know, that's a total criminal to me. Well, it's um, that interesting notion about the victims of Balloon Man and who they are and what mm-hmm. they represent, which I suppose as we go through them and over the course of the podcast, you'll see that, you know, in, for example, this one is a financier. Yeah. So if you think back to the last sort of five, six, seven years and what's happened in various countries around the world uh, to do with banking and stockbroking mm-hmm. uh, and hedge funds and so on, then this is someone that's being put up there as beyond the law and that's why the vigilante is taking action. Absolutely. And another great thing about this scene is that we get the, the reintroduction of Selena. There's a reason Absolutely. she's back, which is she's told Jim that she knows who the killer is. Um, luckily, this is all happening on screen, so we didn't get an off-screen off screen reveal of who the killer is. She's going to tell Jim why she knows and where she was at the time. Um, this is what I was waiting for, you know, that the, the closeout of episode two with with that revelation that she's seen the, the killer uh, as i mentioned last week i'm i i'm quite dubious about this that she that she does know who the killer is um and once again she makes you know she talks much more about why she was there and placing herself in the location and then runs away and gets away from jim um by breaking out of uh, breaking out of handcuffs with the stolen pen that she robs from uh, from Harvey when <laughs> Harvey Bullock when she's in the uh, in the uh, the GCPD, which I thought was quite funny. That's a nice little uh, sort of again fun moment where Harvey yeah. Bullock just turns around and is like, "Where's my pen?" Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> just before that, he's been saying, you know, "Stand back to Selena Kyle, you're yeah. invading my personal space." Exactly. Um, yeah, so it's a nice little, She's nice little a, idea. She there. is a little kleptomaniac, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, but as I say, you know, once again, I don't know what, what your feeling is, John, about this, but I, I just feel that Selena's telling the story to to uh, Jim that she knows who killed, uh, who killed the Waynes, because once again, as she said the last episode, if I had a piece of information that you really wanted, what would you do for me? Um, that's her justification for kind of leading Jim on a bit. So that she can get away from child services and run and and go back to her old life, essentially. I kind of agree with you. I I think um, you know, when we think of Catwoman and in this sense, then Cat and she's trying to find her feet with regards to who she is um, growing up and ultimately what she becomes. And we obviously know her as to what she becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard cats always find their feet. They do. They always land on their, their four, four Sorry, paws. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> she does look out for herself. Mm-hmm. It's number one. But at the same time, she's not an out-and-out um, person who won't necessarily think beyond herself and for other people. And I just wonder whether, yes, in this case, you know, she doesn't want to go upstate, mm-hmm. uh, as from the previous episode. Um, she doesn't want to go into an orphanage, into an institution, because actually, from the last episode, she's got a locket with um, a picture of, presumably, and we're assuming her mum, mm-hmm. but it's a lady. It's pretty um, likely to It's her mum. Yeah. And to investigate whether her mum is still alive. She thinks it that she is, I would say. Yeah. And maybe when we talk about the connection later on between Batman and Catwoman, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, other than the fact that they are, you know, masked vigilantes to an extent on different sides of the line, but still walking kind of a middle line, you know, Catwoman is not intrinsically um, like a Joker. She's not ultimately... 100% evil, in the same way that Batman does have an anti-hero element as well in some cases. Mm-hmm. So, and for me, I wonder whether that connection is ultimately going to be on the fact that they're both orphans, that Selina Kyle gets to see that 
um, maybe her mom isn't alive and she is alone in this world. And that is maybe the hub or the genesis of this connection between these two characters. I remember probably back to our second or third podcast where for me it was about seeing how these characters come together and develop and whether in this case you have a young Bruce Wayne and a young Selina Kyle that they are um, have a connection that goes much further back and means that their connection as Catwoman and Batwoman as Catwoman and and the Batman um, maybe comes from something even more sort of um, close to the two of them Mm -hmm. um, and not simply that Batman sees an intrinsic good side to Selina Kyle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and she essentially escapes from the, from the handcuffs that uh, that Jim has put on her, and she disappears. We don't see her again for the rest of the episode. So that little cliffhanger that we got in episode two, there's a slight, I suppose, a slight help to it for Jim, but we've always known she was at the location of the of the murder. And now he knows that, or at least he thinks he knows that she's the one that saw the murder, you know? Um, this is a murder that will be solved. We've mentioned it before. It's not like it's not like nobody ever knew who killed um, the parents of, of Bruce Wayne. It will be solved. We know there is a murder. It's just all the dealings behind it that we may not have known in the past before who put the person up to murder the, the Waynes. So I would suspect that at some point, if it is Selena Kyle that knows the killer, that she'll come back and there will be that revelation will be made, probably about episode eight or nine kind of thing. Um, but... But she's gone now. She's left the episode. Yeah, she's escaped. She's yeah. escaped um, juvenile uh, detention yeah. and the uh, city children's services because Jim Gordon's asked her to come and help her and question her in the alley. And now she's escaped from Jim Gordon by um, unpicking the, the cuffs uh, whilst Jim Gordon is down in a sewer. Yeah. And oh, there is one reference that's in that scene as well, which I completely forgot to mention. Just the, the reference that she says she can see in the dark. So once yes. again, she's identifying herself as a cat that she can see in the dark. Um, and, and yeah, she's, she's just making that little reference in case you don't know by the fact that she calls herself cat and, and does all these movements like a cat. But she escapes into the city essentially yeah. free now. And maybe that's her purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and she no longer then appears in the rest of, of this episode. Yeah. Um, But then I suppose one of the other elements then that we kind of thought we would talk about um, all together because they are all kind of linked relate to those um, parts of this episode, which um, link to Montoya and Alan and then with Fish, Jim and and Barbara. They're all kind of slightly connected in a way whereby you have the scenes um, between Fish and then the MCU, René Montoya and Christmas Allen. That then goes and moves to the precinct between um, these two detectives and Jim Gordon. And ultimately this plays out then between René Montoya and Barbara Keane. Um, some of the consequences of these other scenes mm-hmm. uh, between those two in Barbara's apartment and also then begins Barbara down a line of asking Jim to be more open with her. Yeah, absolutely. Like There were two big murders in, in the pilot. Let's not forget that. There were two quite sizable murders. One was of the Wayne uh, parents and the second one was ostensibly for everybody else in the city. It was the death of Oswald Cobblepot. Um, this was the biggest snitch that Montoya and Alan had. He was the person that was giving them all the information about the underworld, apparently. Um, he's gave, he gave them the big lead that essentially um, that the Waynes weren't killed by the person that had been uh, that, that the crime had been pinned on. So they're 
they're essentially just continuing their investigation into where Oswald disappeared to. So they make the assumption that firstly it's probably fish that killed that killed him off. So they go and interview Fish Mooney about it. Yeah, and these are really, I think, potentially crucial and important scenes, probably for some of the future episodes. And it, it certainly is one of this elements about the the lie that Jim Gordon has essentially given to um, Harvey Bullock and ultimately to uh, Carmine Falcone that he has killed Oswald. Mm. But that suspicion is beginning to tighten in on him as Montoya and Alan go to Fish Mooney's club to investigate Oswald, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like, a, you know, straight off, uh, you know, I really like this scene. I think this scene is probably one of the standouts of the episode uh, as as it goes along. Great little interplay between Montoya and Alan and, and Fish here, where essentially, you know, um, they're questioning her about it. She says, you know, he's he's dead. She confirms Oswald's dead to the two of them and confirms that it wasn't her that killed him. She didn't do it. Um, then there's a piece with Alan where he's kind of going, you know, uh, who did kill him? And she goes, well, that's not the, that's not the big question. Who can make a cop commit cold-blooded murder? Um, yeah, but then she goes on to say and confirm everything, that Jim Gordon pulled the trigger, but who gave the order? Who got a cop to pull that trigger? And I love her kind of duplicity in all of this. Is like, I just want justice for little Oswald. Yeah. It's like, it's her pet. You know, it was my little penguin. All these notions that almost she was like um, a mother to him. That she was teaching him the ways of being a great mob boss and a real underhand mob boss. And mm-hmm. I'm sure Oswald has learned so much from, from her. Absolutely. And like you kind of would say... You can see some of that uh, in this episode uh, with with Oswald. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But ultimately as well, there's a revenge and payback element to Falcone. And it also puts her in a slight, I mean, predicament ultimately because she has said, on the one hand, it's a cop, it's Jim Gordon. We know that Rene Montoya and Christmas Allen already have suspicions over um, Jim Gordon, mm-hmm. um, whether it's just by association with Harvey Bullock. She puts it on the shoulders of a cop, but puts the orders for that shooting on the on her boss's shoulders with Falcone. This puts her in a really uh, precarious position because Absolutely. a wrong word here or a wrong word there, and things may start to close in on her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's odd that it's Laszlo that points it out to her. Laszlo, who got beaten up by Falcone's men the previous week for, you know, for essentially an intrusion by. Fish Mooney onto Falcone's territory. Um, Lazar got beaten up by them. He's the one that calls it out, where he goes, you probably shouldn't be doing this. You've just turned the major crimes unit on Falcone now. There will be consequences to this. Um, yeah, and, and for his... Um, for that loyalty, <laughs> she essentially turns to one of her bodyguards, one of her hired thugs, mm-hmm. and says... Sure, whilst you're at it, get rid of Laszlo. Yeah. Because at the same time, essentially kill her former lover. Uh, because maybe he doesn't look as pretty as he used to, because he's just had a beating of his life from the Don Falcone's uh, troops. But also, she is even more... You, you can see the simmer, I think, in Jada Pinkett Smith's portrayal of, of Fish Mooney. This idea, you know, she really wants to get uh, Falcone back. And she actually puts a hit out on and a revenge hit on Carmine's lady. Here is a bit on the side, probably. Yeah, the bit on the side <laughs> that she's going to have an accident. And as a secondary part from from that, she tells the guy, 
oh, and, and you know, take Laszlo out as well. He's starting to bring the mood down. <laughs> like, yet he's just been incredibly loyal to her, yeah. uh, and that's a very interesting little um, sequence as well. Yeah, and the bit we talked about last week was Laszlo possibly being the character Professor Pig that you like to bring up so often. Um, <laughs> could this be the creation of the character that he's that he's now a spurned lover? Essentially, could this lead into that creation of another? bad guy in Gotham, which I think is yeah. interesting. Um, but this whole conversation between um, Montoya, Alan, and Mooney leads to Montoya and Alan tackling Jim Gordon directly, confronting him. The MCU are now kind of on to Jim Gordon, and they confront him in the precinct. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really good scene, actually. This is, you know, I just think these scenes stand out as being something really separate in, in this episode and really, really good. Um, you could cut them all together into a nice little a nice little montage of, uh, of this story of, of what actually is happening to Jim and, and where where the suspicion is coming in and, and the interplay between these yeah, two characters it, is really good. It's this pressure ratcheting mm. up on Jim Gordon because his colleagues, the colleagues who you would expect him to associate most closely to because of you know honesty, morality... Mm the ethics that they may have of being relatively uncorrupt or not corrupt at all and clean, they think he is ultimately in the pocket of Falcone, mm-hmm. um, that he is a killer. He is a corrupt and a bent cop who um, will carry out orders of the mobsters. And this pressure, you see this pressure ratcheting up on Jim Gordon um, because they're confronting him about that he murdered Oswald quite explicitly. Yeah, yeah. On edge, Gordon. I'm fine. How can I help you? Oh, we were just uh, wondering. When you shot Cobblepot in the head and dumped his body in the river, did Falcon pay you? Or was that more of a favor to the Don type thing? It's um, cops investigating cops. It's that internal affairs thing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how, how Jim calls it, Ed. It's when did the MCU become internal affairs um, and they started saying when cops did things like this you know it's 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 really good because when he gets the defensive when he gets so as defensive as he does and he gets his back his back starts to rise you can tell he's just getting angry and aggressive with the two of them and if he just explained it to them maybe they could have worked something out but he doesn't want the finger of uh, the finger pointed at him you know um, it, yeah it really riles him up mm-hmm. and um, you know he he completely um, says that he didn't kill it. You know, he completely rejects the notion. In a sense, he is being truthful with Montoya and Alan. Yeah, but the response, the way he, the way he delivers it to them, he says, "I didn't do it." And they said, "What do you mean? You didn't kill Cobblepot, or you didn't kill him for Falcone?" Yeah. You know, that's that's the the response from the two of them. They're they're totally of the same opinion. And once again, you get into the interview room with the two of them. They rip you, rip you to shreds. You know yeah. they are they are pushing until Jim walks away. But I love the final image of this um, of this scene where it pans back to a wide shot of the precinct area where they've had this conversation, and Jim has just kind of pushed his way past uh, Christmas Allen. Mm. Christmas Allen is shouting after him as Jim is leaving. Essentially, you know, feeling probably pretty. Pretty scared, pretty um, annoyed that he's in this position and these people think this of him. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a great little frame of, of of the scene. And I think it also just then links to something that you had spotted as well, um, a great scene between Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock yeah. that, that relates to this whole thing where Jim Gordon 
suddenly throws caution to the wind with Harvey Bullock and has to trust him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, what I'd mentioned essentially when we were watching it was um, that this is probably the first time that Harvey has been uh, has been has had a full serious scene from end to end. And definitely in this episode, there's a lot of scenes where he maybe has a serious line, but it's followed by a gag or a joke. There's no gags or jokes in here. Harvey is dead serious. He mentioned in the pilot episode where he said, if we don't do what Falcon's going to is telling us to do, not only am I dead, which is most important to me, you're dead. And your girlfriend's dead. Um, everybody you know, we're all dead if you don't do what Falcone said. And he was genuinely terrified in that scene. In here, he is repeating it, and he looks even more scared. And Jim asks him, you know, if I don't do it, am I going to be the next person in the bay? Am I going to be the next person killed? Harvey doesn't answer him, because the answer is yes, you will be. Yeah, it, yeah it's a really good scene. And then from this, the sort of fallout from this is, again, a much more personalised character discussion between Rene Montoya and Barbara Keane, where you get the backstory being fleshed out between these two characters, that they were lovers. Yeah. Um, and this is a really good scene. You see that Rene Montoya is going to Barbara because she's concerned by what she perceives Jim to be and what he she thinks he's done and she is concerned for the safety of her ex-lover. Yeah. And she still has the key. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's some creepiness in here. There's some as as I think I think I've mentioned in, in one of the previous episodes there's some stuff with Rena Montoya where you're kind of going step back, love. Uh, you're getting a bit too close there. You know, she not only does she um does she go straight to Barbara to tell her that her potential, you know, her her future husband is a murderer. Uh, to break them up, essentially. Um, she says, yeah, she opens the door with the key that she kept when the two of them were together, which must be a couple of years now that they've been broken apart, yeah, because, you know, Jim and Jim and Barbara have been together for a while, so it must be a couple of years since they were uh, broken apart. She then accuses her of being a drug addict, um, says she's getting high in the middle of the day, and uh, she knows you've had a lot of drugs before, essentially. Yeah, but there's a great comeback there where Rene Montoya goes, I was there through all of it, remember? And she's just essentially accused Barbara of starting the the drug taking a bit too early in the morning mm -hmm. and barbara just responds with a great line you were a part of it yeah that you kind of pushed me or made me begin to rely heavily or more heavily on, on drugs and this is a really great insight between these two characters and um, the complexity of their relationship the fact that maybe it wasn't all just lovey-dovey that there was Absolutely. some real there was maybe a bit of antagonism between the two of them but maybe they loved that and that's what kept them you know they fed off that who knows and it all got too much we we're just speculating here but i mean this is an excellent scene and yeah. i just want to quickly make the point of i think this is where i just think that this scene just seems at strange odds with the tone of the balloon man. It just it feels like it's from a different episode compared to some of the other stuff in in here. And I think that discordancy with the overall episode between some of these deeper, darker, and more serious, more challenging scenes for the audience, whether that marries as as well to some of the lighter elements, I'm not entirely sure that that works. But for me, this is a standout scene. It's great. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the writer of this episode has written some episodes for Flash or for Arrow. Um, and I think that's the tone for a lot of the episodes. It's very similar in tone to some of the Flash or Arrow episodes where you've got a bad guy who dresses up in a, in a costume and then 
you know, commits murder, essentially. You know, that's that's the basic concept of it. With these scenes, they seem like something you'd never see on the soap opera side that you'd see on, on Arrow and, and Flash. They're much more soap opera types from what we've seen uh, of, of those shows. I think um, as well. And I think it, 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 it stands out for that reason. But the, uh, the stuff that you learn about their relationship in this, you know, it, it's a bit of a two-minute scene. It's, a pretty, it's, yeah. it's quite a long scene, I suppose, between just the two characters. But this, you've learned a significant amount about the two characters. You've learned that they're, they had a very difficult past. You've learned that they were together for a long time. It was before Jim was around. And that um, and the kind of animosity between the two characters now and, and how much they've, yeah. they've gone apart. You know? They had a difficult relationship, but they obviously... Um, loved or cared incredibly deeply about one another. I mean, I I love this notion that uh, Montoya is kind of saying, you know, he's lying to you, Barbara. And mm. Barbara's kind of comes back with, yes, but you lied to me as well. And Ray Montoya kind of counters again. It's this, this quip of, yes, but you could tell, you could always tell. You know, ask yourself, can you, do you know whether Jim is lying? Can you tell? Mm-hmm. And this just shows that Yes, their relationship seems to be difficult, but they knew one another yeah. intimately and so well. You know, you, there's a lot of things being thrown out here that Barbara thinks, you know, this is actually personal, that Rennie is doing this, coming here, essentially undermining the character of her fiancé-to-be mm-hmm. and just to get at him because he is with her and Rennie Montoya still has feelings for Barbara and she actually says, I can't stand seeing you with him. Yeah. Yep. It's a really excellent scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and she does make the plea with her. Once again, she says, you know, I've been sober for a year, which Rene essentially feels that's the reason they broke up was because she was doing a lot of drugs or she was taking she's taking a lot of alcohol. She's now telling her, I'm sober. Oh, actually, maybe that won't matter. And then tries to kiss her, which doesn't go down well at all with Barbara. Barbara essentially wants this woman out of her home. She's moved on. It looks like Rene hasn't. And as I talked about before, the um, the obsessive kind of nature of Rene is starting to come out a bit more. And I really like the development of this character. Yeah. It definitely reminds me, this this relationship between the two of them, or the description of the past relationship, let me say, um, reminds me of her relationship with Daria towards the end of the uh, of the comic book series uh, Gotham Central that we covered. Yes. Um, where Darla had been her partner all the way throughout that. Uh, they had a great relationship, and as it started to get to the end, and as the pressure of their job came on board, Rene Montoya started to drink really heavily, go out late at night, lie to Dar- Darla every day, and their the relationship started to break down uh, within the series. And I think that's really, it, it's really telling. That's what they've taken from the character of Rene Montoya for for this TV show, and I'm really, really enjoy it. I think they've done a great job. And I think really what we see in some of the other scenes then is that it's planted a seed in Barbara's mind that she needs to probe and ask much more and deeper questions of Jim about his job. Mm -hmm. Um, And that ultimately, I think, potentially is a source of of tension. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose... Once again, it's the shifting sands part of their relationship. It's the structure built on sand, I suppose, uh, part of their relationship. He does love Barbara, and that's absolutely definite. She loves him. You can tell that for a fact. Um, In the performance, you can tell that between all the interplay between them. But whenever she asks him about, you know, his day-to-day job and some details about the investigations, you can tell he doesn't trust her with the information. You know, she's already turned on him. Um, very quickly when he gave her a small piece of information in the last episode, uh, 
so now he he's not going to trust her with this huge piece of information that would that could see her turn against him completely. Um, absolutely, you know. But it's a fantastic scene. But whilst all this professional suspicion and turmoil and and personal uh, undermining is going on for Jim Gordon, he is also then investigating the the balloon man case. And what we find is that he gets um, him and Harvey Bullock get a, a lead because um, of this guy called Smokers, who his boss thinks is the balloon man, because he sells weather balloons, and four of them have gone missing, and this this young employee has stopped coming into work. He's just vanished as far as his boss is concerned. And so they start tracking down this suspect Smokers. Yeah, yeah, and with a great scene where they go to, uh, where they go to his apartment, where they found him. Uh, and he's with uh, he's with his girlfriend essentially, who's about seven foot tall by the looks <laughs> of things, yeah. almost a Grace Jones type of type of girl who beats the heck out of uh, out of Harvey Bullock. And I just think it's an, it's a very funny it's scene, funny scene, uh, and a really good. It's like the the whole timing of it is mm-hmm. really good. It's physical. And it's it's yeah it's really funny. Uh, well, she's about to put a TV yeah. through his on on truck it down onto his head, yeah. uh, and Jim finally stops it. And you kind of just think that it's you know, Grant she's probably going to get arrested as well for being um, violent and disorderly towards a, a police detective. And then Harvey Bullock, of course, being Harvey Bullock, it doesn't matter whether you're a man, woman, an animal, or whatever, you get a you get a punch because you've just been punching him. This is like a fair fight to, yeah. to Harvey Bullock. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, fun, fun little scene with scene with uh, with him, and the, obviously the revelation that there's four weather balloons. So we had the original victim at the beginning of the show. We have uh, a detective as the second victim, uh, Lieutenant Bill Cranston, isn't it? Um, yeah, he's he's essentially stopped by uh, by the balloon man this time. Uh, dressed up as a hot dog seller, but looks really like the character The Shadow from DC Comics. He's got the mask uh, pulled up over his face, like a uh, yeah, like a bandana or a scarf, kind yeah. of just uh, covering his nose and lower half of his face. Yeah, and he's wearing the fedora on his head. So yeah, looked, he's got the trench coat as well. Yeah, yeah, it looked really like The Shadow to me. The minute I saw it, I had to check it out on the internet and find out: is there any connection? Is this you know, are they revealing The Shadow as as a, as a character in here? Um, what's really interesting is that essentially we find out later on in the show, you've obviously seen it, so we're not spoiling anything for you, um, but we find out later on in the show that the killer's name is actually Davis Lamont, and this officer is uh, is Detective Cranston, and the character of the Shadow, his his actual name in, in the comic books is Lamont Cranston, so it absolutely has to be Yeah, a it's a nod it? to the Shadow. So while we don't have a Joker watch this week, we definitely have a DC character in here. There's, a, there's a, a definitely some reference in there. But we're kind of introduced to Bill Cranston as being kind of an overly physical interrogator of suspects yeah. um, yeah. to begin with. Um, he likes to use his award that he got, um, which kind of looked like a, an Oscar, a grubby mm-hmm. Oscar, to get a response from anyone he's interrogating, presumably by uh, whacking suspects over the head when he's got them in the interview room. Yeah, I like that he calls him O'Brien as well, which is a, which is a reference to the fact that a lot of cops in, in the city are have an Irish origin, which I think is quite funny. Um, a little bit about Sarah Essen actually comes in in this episode, Ca- Captain Sarah Essen, which just kind of, I know it's a little bit out of place from where it happened in the episode, but I just love her reaction when uh, when they find out that there's four weather balloons, so therefore there's going to be at least four victims uh, of the balloon man. <laughs> and she just goes, oh God, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. These The victims have all been people in power in the city who are corrupt, 
which is basically everybody in power in the city. And it's her responsibility to resolve the case. So once again, this is her job on the line. Um, just like in the last episode, this is her job on the line um, if they don't solve it. So it's get out there, fix this as soon as possible. Uh, really good scene with Sarah S. And we haven't really seen much of her so far uh, in, the, in the show. Um, but I really do like her position as the, as the captain here. Yeah, and in this sense then, victim number two, Lieutenant Cranston, is picked because he is seen as being an amoral uh, thug of a cop who um, uses force where it's not necessary. And um, the interesting thing about this second victim is ultimately that Cranston can handle himself in a fight. So it looks like the balloon man is getting taken out here Mm -hmm. because his plan doesn't go as he thinks it should and he's knocked to the ground and Cranston starts rooting through his pockets and picks out a a note a piece of paper and there is something familiar about the document and what's written on it and and he recognizes something and as he does he gets cuffed by the ankle and then gets um floated slowly slowly and slowly up to (laughs) the stratosphere and once once again I I think this was better <laughs> the first scene of the of the uh, the killer taking him out, I think, was a little bit better. But well, I like I just, the image I felt because it was going so close, so slow, and because of how close he was to the building beside him, he could have just reached out like a half an inch and could have grabbed onto the onto the wall beside him to pull himself down. It just felt again. I love the way he got taken up. You didn't get a long shot where it, it was slightly unproportioned to the buildings around. Yep. It was him being dragged up towards the heavens, screaming. I thought that was a nice shot as it pans back and he floats up. Mm -hmm. But each to their own, I suppose. But we now have Cranston, this cop, and then we also get the third victim, but we don't get to see the third victim um, taken off into the heavens, is a a priest. Again, is this idea that he's a paedophile, I think, or Mm -hmm. he's he's been involved with abusing children under his care to some degree or to some extent. And um, Yeah, I think think essentially Harvey calls him the diddler priest is is what he's known as in the city, so yeah. Yeah, and so we now have, you know, we've got a corrupt financier, a corrupt cop, and now a corrupt priest within the church. All these three um, are making uh, an appearance as deserving of this kind of vigilante treatment within within the episode. Yeah, and you get the, re- the reactions of the public, of the actual normal Gothamites. You hear them on the TV. Um, you know, once again, the TV is brought back in. Uh, you hear them on the news, essentially singing the praises of this vigilante that's taking care of all the cri- all the criminals that the public see. They don't care about the drug dealers. They don't care about the, the people robbing wallets. What they care about is the people in power who are even more corrupt. Uh, and that's what's coming across. And um, it was pointed out that this scene is actually very similar to one that's in The Dark Knight Returns, the, uh, the Frank Miller comic book and the the movie. Um, that essentially this is the the citizens of Go- of Gotham taking up on the side of the vigilantes versus the cops and versus the Absolutely. people in power. Yeah, it's a real close connection to that coming from from these. Uh, these con men uh, being taken off into into space. Yeah, and the nice little gag of the woman going, uh, can you go after my landlord next? <laughs> and yeah, starts exactly. giving his name like, and address. That's a good little gag. Like Harvey Bullock as well goes, you know, if it's a con man, go ahead, you know, float them off up into the atmosphere. But when they kill a cop or they take down Cranston, that's a job safety <laughs> issue. You know, like now all of a sudden, now all the resource of the force 
is brought to to heed on whoever this balloon man is and find him as quickly as possible because yeah. they took a cop. Yeah. You know, essentially, they they do track Davis uh, Lamont down um, as the killer. They they find the uh, the piece of, of paper that uh, that the cop had taken. They find that it's actually the signature of Jim Gordon that he's given when Selena Kyle was handed over to him. So he knows exactly who this guy is. He's he works for child services. Um, they track him down. They meet up with him, and this actually is one of uh, probably one of the best written scenes of the balloon man side of things. The justification for why this guy became. Yeah. The, the vigilante uh, is really good and I really, really liked it. And it's kind of unfortunate for me that it came on the back of some, to me, quite poor uh, visualizations of the guy. You know, perhaps they could have had him poisoning people. Perhaps they could have had him doing something different than sending people off with weather, weather balloons. But there's justification for becoming um, this vigilante and why he snapped. He's described as being just a good guy. You know, he works with kids. He's done it for years. And essentially the reason why he's done it is because the mayor decided to round up all the kids and send them off to this horrible place uh, upstate. And this guy has realized that all the work he's done for the last 15 years with kids is for nothing. Um, he's not able to change Gotham. He's not been able to do anything in Gotham because of the corrupt politicians that are there that are that use every opportunity to, you know, to, to turn on the children of the city that he spent his, his life dedicated to them. That's why he went after all the other corrupt people in the city. Uh, it was because of this turn by the by the mayor. Yeah, absolutely. And we then have this really important realization by the young Bruce Wayne about vigilantism. And who stood up to the corruption, eating at the heart of Gotham, willing to break the law in order to save it. Well, I imagine the criminals of Gotham are sleeping well tonight. He killed people. I made him a criminal too. That's very true. So he makes the distinction. Yes, he was a vigilante, but he killed people when he did it. That means he's bad. This means he is no better than the criminals. Yeah. And it's this realisation that maybe someone who brought them to justice and didn't kill them would be better. Yeah. That that, rather than simply going back on a revenge killing, is the distinction that the young Bruce Wayne here seems to make. And now with this man gone, who will defend Gotham now? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point of revelation, I suppose, as, as you say, for, for Bruce Wayne. There's a couple of little things that happen for Bruce in this episode. You know, there's the piece about he's investigating his parents' murders. He's he's taken the police files from uh, from the police, and uh, and Alfred's really shocked by this. He's yeah, like, where you know, did he get them from? Yeah. And he's like, oh, it wasn't that hard. You're kind of going, okay, did you break into the police station as a 10-year-old boy and steal this stuff? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because these are two... You know, number number one, we've in, we've seen many interpretations of the character that essentially his first investigation was into his parents' murder. That's what he said a number of times. Uh, so this is playing out now. Uh, and secondly, with this piece, which is fundamental to to Batman's character, that he doesn't kill. He's not. He's a vigilante, but he doesn't kill his victims. Um, both coming out this exactly. Episode. And with those police files as well, he makes that lovely little notion um, come alive that I'm looking for clues then I'll be a detective. Yeah. It's this idea that he sees that he has to be clever about finding and tracking these people down, that he's becoming a detective, and that it links into then maybe these notions of justice. The young Bruce Wayne's development and the path that he goes down, he's Absolutely. now decided two important things that we know about the Batman, that you have to look for clues and be a detective, and secondly, that 
it's about arresting and apprehending the criminal, not about killing them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, really, really, really good scenes. So one other piece of revelation within the within this, really for Jim, uh, comes from the balloon man. He talks to the guy as he's being carted off in the ambulance, asks him who his final victim is or who it was supposed to be, and talks to Barbara about this because it actually has genuinely disturbed Jim Gordon because what the balloon man says to him was, it doesn't matter. There's so many corrupt people. You could never have saved the victims unless you caught me, essentially. There's so many corrupt people in Gotham. I could just attach a balloon randomly to any of the major politicians. Everybody was a target for him, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. I thought that was a good little uh, a good little piece. Yeah, and it's this notion that Jim Gordon calls the city of Gotham sick, that it's sick, it's ill, and people just don't really seem to care. But that's why they've attached and embraced the balloon man, because they're doing stuff that... It's always a witch hunt, in a sense. Um, And he feels that he's let um, the people of Gotham down by allowing this person to actually get some kind of credence and credibility of the people of Gotham. And, you know, there's a really then great scene, tender scene between him and Barbara, where she's kind of like, she realises he's in a tough position and she sort of expresses her feelings towards him. And and that's um, a really personal moment between the two of them which Absolutely. is really nice and coming on the back of the of the scenes with Montoya you know she's she's has this background um knowledge now about about Jim and she she has some concerns now about him but essentially she's reiterating that she's on his side and she's going to stand up for him essentially yeah really really good and um, so the other major character arc that's in this episode which kind of isn't really connected to anything else is what's happening with uh, with Oswald you know we saw him at the start of the episode arrive back in the city. Um, there's a bunch of really good scenes with, with uh, Robin Lord Taylor's Oswald Cobblepot. Um, once again, a real standout in the show, I think, in this in this uh, episode. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I mean, we see him sort of arrive back in Gotham, as we said at the start, but we also see him get recognised, and he is yeah. petrified by this. And again, you see his sort of survival brutal instincts kind of come flowing out as, you know, the guy gets... Um, gets his uh, Achilles heel sliced mm-hmm. and then you know, repeatedly stabbed. Yeah. Um, like he, luckily for Jim Gordon as well, doesn't want to be noticed uh, just as much as Jim Gordon never wants him ever to come back to, to Gotham. Yeah, yeah. but there's, a, there's some really important lines between uh, Oswald and this, this guy that, that catches him, who's one of Fish's thugs, really, Fish Mooney's thugs, really. Um, he essentially says to him, you know, I had to come back to Gotham. It's my home. It's the only place I've ever known. I am the future of Gotham. And the guy said, well, if, if you're the future of Gotham, then uh, then Gotham's got a lot to worry about. Yeah, it's in big um, trouble, it's basically. In, it's in big yeah. trouble. Uh, and he says it, I know, um, which is which is the thing. He Oswald knows Gotham is in trouble, and he wants to be the one to save it. Whatever that means to, to Oswald is uh, is open to interpretation. Exactly. I thought it was quite interesting. And But this, this episode sees Oswald in a sense, squirming his way back into um, the mobster society of, of Gotham. But obviously, uh, Fish Mooney's um, empire and Falcone's empire are far too dangerous for him. He can't go back there. He is technically dead for them. And so he begins to start at the bottom again in the Maroni's family's empire and primarily in the employ of Maroney in his restaurant, in the kitchens. Yeah, yeah, I think this is really interesting. He's essentially capitalising on the plan that he'd made uh, when he was sitting in his caravan, staring up at the 
his map of Gotham and his uh, his map of all the connections between these people. He obviously saw, uh, as we said, Moroni didn't appear on that map, so he's obviously seen a way back in, and it's through Moroni and through his restaurant. Um, but yeah, the violence and the the uh, the attitude of Oswald of essentially he'll do anything to get himself in here. He's told he doesn't have the right, the right shoes, so he stabs and kills someone who has the right shoes and takes the shoes and gets a job. Um, you know, it's quite a brutal Probably scene. Rather than go out and buy them exactly, like any normal, sane, unpsychotic person would do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another, little, another little point that's in there after he kills uh, one of the guys, he goes off and gets himself a tuna sandwich. So once again, after killing someone, he goes and gets himself something to eat. This is possibly where he starts putting on the weight to become the penguin over the years. Um, yeah, we've seen it a couple of times in the past, but uh, that's quite an interesting little bit. Tuna sandwich is generally quite healthy. <laughs> but the sandwich isn't healthy. You know, the white bread. Yeah, the mayonnaise. Puts on a lot of, yeah. put on a lot of weight. Yeah. But we also, as well, then, we get introduced to the first time to Sal Maroney. Yeah. With uh, David Zayas. Mm-hmm. David Zayas of Dexter um, playing the role of Sal Maroney. I think he does a great job here. Uh, he is creepy. Yeah. I really, really enjoy it. Like, he's not on the screen for very long. It's really short. Uh, moment, but he conveys a creepy dark menace, more so than um, Falcone. John Doman, there, it's kind of this honorable, sort of powerful old mobster. Money. Yeah, old, old money. money. This is someone who is more scrappy, yeah. who ha- is fighting to undermine and is maybe a bit more um, subversive in, in how he goes about things than Falcone. Falcone is about we keep a structure. Moroni is let's upset that structure and be um, a bit underhand about how we get into a position of power. Yeah. He wants ultimately what Falcone has, but he has to go about it in a different way because Falcone pulls all the strings. Yeah, absolutely. And this is you know traditional setup from a from a mobster film. There's obviously two rival families here. One's in power, one isn't. The one that isn't in power essentially is saying I'm, I've worked my way up which means he probably killed his way up uh, up the ladder and isn't going to stop soon he makes the, the mention of um, his plan some kind of plan for Arkham um, that'll show Gotham that Falcone isn't in control that he he has more of the strings than, than Falcone does um, Oswald overhears it because he's well sitting there with his with his ear wide open for anything he can possibly pick up um, and yeah. there's a there's a great little standoff moment between the two of them, or a great little introduction between Sal Maroney and, and Oswald, which I think is really interesting, uh, where he introduces himself as Paolo uh, <laughs> to, to have <laughs> yeah, an exactly. Italian background, you know. And and Maroney kind of makes this point. Sal Maroney makes the point of Gotham is a city of opportunity. You know, I was like you. He actually looks at Oswald Cobblepot or Paolo um, as he's being introduced to him. And uh, says, I was like you. I kept my head down and worked hard. And look where I've um, come now. He's like kind of looks at him very menacingly and hands out some money. And Oswald is, you know, sassy enough to realize, um, yeah, I didn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. But we get introduced to, to Arkham and this link to the Arkham area of Gotham. And that is going to play out in future episodes. Um, that's kind of been indicated previously. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, you know, you see the kind of resentment that Maroney has of Falcone, that Falcone is only the boss of Gotham because people think that he is. Arkham will expose him and show that the Emperor has no clothes, yeah. that he is weak and that other people can be 
equally as important and take over that mantle. Like this is a real power play. With so many different competing power plays, you've got Fish seeking her revenge, like we talked about, uh, against Carmine. She really wants to see him dead. Ultimately, it's much more brutal. Maroni is about getting his power and influence within the city and squashing Falcone as well. And at the same time, then you've got Oswald. They either think he's dead or they think he's called Paolo. Yeah. They don't even know that this is a threat here, but he is waiting, watching, and has learnt from what he did from episode one and where that got him. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I do love this scene. I think it's a really, really good scene between Maroni and uh, um, you know, the introduction of Maroni, really. Um, it could appear in any episode. There's no real connection with the Bloom Man except when he sees the news story about the priest essentially being killed on the TV and has this kind of really good quote that I like. Once again, Cardinal Quinn, accused of multiple counts of sexual abuse, is the latest victim of the vigilante. See, this, this is not good. Can't go around killing priests. At least not in public. <laughs> go take care of your mother, Paula. Where it just shows the violence, you know, of, of Moroni, where he's essentially saying, you know, you can kill priests, but just not in public, um, which I think is really good. But then we see, uh, you know, another another scene I wanted to talk about was a, a scene between Fish and uh, Fish and, and Falcone later on. Yeah, Falcone and there's all on. these competing um, rivalries all are merging together um, around Arkham, and it's this idea as well that, you know. We find out that Fisher's plan to uh, give Carmine Falcone's um, bid on the side um, a little accident has worked. Mm -hmm. um, she's called Natalia, and she has been given a little accident. Yeah. Um, and it moves on to Arkham then. Um, again, we get this, these notions that you know people are behaving crazy, and crazy is bad for business, as Falcone says. And um, ever since the Wayne's murder, the city has gone crazy. It's this rumbling, and Arkham is probably, in a nice sort of way, is going to expose this crazy element of the city. Yeah. Um, it's the home of the asylum, and the city is kind of unsettled after the Wayne's murder. But it moves on to, you know, are there any rumblings from Maroni's camp? Yeah, yeah, but I, I think it's it's hugely important what they're talking about is essentially, um, what Falcone is essentially saying is the old ways are starting to change, where you could be in control, where you had, you know, as we said in the first episode, where you, you know, you, you can't rule a city like this without order. Um, that order is starting to break down and he's noticing it. Uh, he notices purely from Maroni because he's a very different style of criminal than he is. Um, you know, he's he's attacking, he's killing. He potentially is the one that took out his girlfriend. Is what he he thinks, or does he does he suspect Fish Mooney of doing that? I'm not too sure. There is definitely a little bit of a um, a little bit of of a suspicion on his part. But what he's seeing is that people are starting, you know, to, to live by different rules now already. Um, and where's where's he going to fit in now that the that the pillars of the community that where the Waynes are gone, uh, and he's the other pillar, and he's being attacked on all sides. You know, I, yeah. I, I really like this idea. But he still recognises Maroney as part of the same thing. I love this notion that he said that Penguin was a, an odd little fellow, like just before he ordered Jim Gordon to shoot him, or so he thinks. Mm -hmm. And for him, it's this idea that he would never consider 
Oswald Cobblepot to be a rival yeah. or any serious contender. He may have his suspicions about Fish Mooney. He doesn't even consider Oswald as any form of rival. This is all about underestimating what is happening and maybe being blind to what is actually happening and underestimating you know, people who you would consider just to be pure down and outs and have no business running crime syndicates or whatever. Um, and this is because Oswald has nothing to lose. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, really, really good this time. Uh, another another fantastic bit from, from Robin Lord Taylor in this episode. Really enjoyed it. Um, there, there was one little bit in there, wasn't there, behind Falcone? The dancers behind him? Kind yeah. of thinking, was that Harley Quinn? It's amazing what a bit of blonde hair and two and, and uh, two pony- heavy eyeliner and um, two ponytails. You know, it, it does. Yeah, really I mean, a... we're not going to be having a a Joker watch this episode. We really couldn't see anything that might be um, the Joker. Absolutely, but if you saw anything, send us in some feedback and let us know where we got it wrong. <laughs> and once again, the episode ends with a nice little cliffhanger with Oswald turning up at the door of, uh, of Jim Gordon's house. Yeah, and Barbara's apartment. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. There's actually Barbara's apartment. You're totally yeah. right. It's she not, owns the she, property in that got, relationship. She's got the money. But it's a great little ending. Um, you know, we've seen Oswald sort of creeping his way back into yeah. Gotham mobster society, as you do. Um, mm-hmm. If you move and turn in those circles. Yep. And he's just there with his feet out, splayed <laughs> yep. out there, stood up, bolt upright. Um, he has a fantastic little line. Hello, James, old friend. His delivery is amazing. And, you know, end of show. Yeah. It's a brilliant little uh, ending to, to this episode, actually. And it's a great little cliffhanger for what's to come in the next Absolutely. episode. Really excited to see the next episode. Then. Um, yeah. Is there anything else from the episode that you want to talk about, John? Uh, um, I don't think so. I think for me... Um, I think that's really all um, from the episode. I mean, the only other thing I kind of liked, which I thought was quite funny, was when Smirkers was being... Carl Smirkers, the the guy who stole the balloons for the balloon man, like, he he starts to say, do you know how weather balloons work? You know, ultimately, they will deflate because of the pressure changes, and all these victims will start falling down to, um, to Earth. And it just reminded me of Fish Called Wanda with the old lady and her four dogs um, <laughs> trying to be killed by um, uh, Michael Palin's character with the, the piano, and he just keeps taking off his dogs. But in this case, I think it's um, Lieutenant Cranston comes crashing down to Earth right on top of her, yeah. um, and she gets wiped out. So... Yeah. Old ladies really do have to be wary about what's above them. I thought this was, it was a really, I, I enjoyed the comedy element of that, I have to say. I know maybe yourself less so. It, but felt, I, it felt a little bit too Looney Tunes for yeah. me. Yeah. But I think for me, this is kind of the slight issue with this episode. For me, it's my, I say least favorite of of the three episodes so far. And in that sense, that's the case. But I think there's some really important elements that make up and continue the stories from the first and second episodes, whether it's Oswald coming back to Gotham, whether it's the continuing um, rivalries um, between Fish and Falcone and introducing Neroni as a further element to that. It, you know, it develops this... Um, the MCU characters of Rene Montoya and Crispus Allen and their suspicion of Jim. You find out more about Montoya and Barbara's 
previous relationship and how that might um, start to get tricky for Barbara's relationship with Jim. And so they are some really important themes that are continuing through from the other episodes. And they're great, and I love them. I think they're really well done. And that's part of the issue, is that they just seem slightly at odds with then these lighter elements for me. But having said that, some of those lighter elements I also kind of enjoyed, sat back and had a little chuckle, like the the lady getting squashed uh, from Lieutenant <laughs> Cranston falling from the sky, the fight of Harvey Bullock with the prostitute when they arrest Smirkers, all those elements I kind of liked, but there was a slight discordancy between the general lightness of the balloon man um, and, and how he killed... Um, his victims with some of these more serious elements, even though his whole speech at the end was really well done. Yeah, yeah, and and for me, I don't want to repeat anything that you said. I think overall, I'd love if those elements that I liked of the episodes had been cut out and put around a better villain. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel you could have done something like the first vigilante in Gotham, which is huge. I think you could have done that over the course of five or six episodes. You could Absolutely. have done a murder in this episode that Gordon and Jim couldn't solve. Uh, and murder in the next episode or an episode three or four down the line that they couldn't solve and stretch this over the course of four or five episodes. They've got 22 to fill up here, you know? Um, they don't have to squash it all into 40 minutes um, to get an investigation in here. I felt it was just a bit mishandled there. Obviously, I think I'm pretty clear in my feelings of the episode. Um, but overall, personally, um, there are there's so many elements that came out of this episode that I really did like. Um, that It's definitely not an episode I would tell anybody to skip. Um, because there's a lot of a lot of things I'd say will probably play out in the future. Yeah, I mean, and I kind of agree. I, I think that they don't necessarily need to have a case that is solved at the end of each episode. And maybe they don't even need to have a a case. They could quite easily have introduced the balloon man as someone who was tying them to one of the blimps, one of the zeppelins, that the police didn't even know about until... At some point, one of them falls back down to to the ground, dead. And all of a sudden, where's this? They go up, investigate, and find a whole host of them up there. In another episode, somewhere down the line. And that actually, episode three may have been better looking at some of the um, story elements that are being carried over from one and two. I just think the pressure of having a case that is started, investigated, and then and completed and tied up at the end of, of each episode, maybe there's a lot of pressure being put on, on them to, to do that, and maybe they can uh, spread that out. I would agree with you that to see the Balloon Man sort of spread over um, the first part of the season gives time for that concept of the vigilante to to develop within the show. Yeah. Yep, no, that's our thoughts on, on the Balloon Man. Um, send your feedback in on what you thought about it uh, when you get the chance. You can send it into feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. You can give it to us on Twitter, or through Facebook, uh, Gotham TV Podcast in both places. Um, and yeah, let's get on to the feedback for this episode. Hello, James. Old friend. So our first piece of feedback is from Daniel from Welcome to Level 7. Again, thanks again for contacting us, Daniel. Uh, so he says, hello, detectives. I have two brief thoughts on episode two. So a bit about the last episode. Um, Selena Kyle. Selena Kyle, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so his first point is the the bad of the episode. He kind of really dislikes the MCUing uh, 
of Sarah Essen. So um, on their show, they talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, you know, essentially how uh, how they create their characters to move from comic book page to screen. Um, Sarah Essen, we talked about her on our Batman Year One coverage. Um, the character herself is a, is a love interest of Jim Gordon's. Um, and what he says here is that, that he feels they've really missed the opportunity to create a CW-style love triangle between two women that have been in Jim Gordon's comic book wife. Um, but I cannot believe with her moral compass and the position of authority relationship with Jim would ever be interested in Essen. Um, maybe that kind of explains the need for the character of Dr. Tompkins, uh, who, we, who we spoke about earlier on. Uh, what do you think, John? The uh, feeling of, of Sarah Essen, what's her... Yeah, I can't see that Captain Essen um, and Jim could get it on um, in that sense. She's under... No, I mean, like, but she's kind of... She, you know, she called him the department's uh, firebrand. Yeah. And at the moment, I think she's very much located on this political necessity and her view on it is to watch out for the interests of her political superiors, in particular the mayor, but probably right up to the commissioner, who we don't know who who that is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that seems to have put her at odds with Jim, who has a much more sort of straightforward approach to this. It doesn't want politics to be involved, and he wants to close cases after investigating them and getting the right person. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a need for a character like Sarah Essen in the show. I think all they've really taken from the comic books is the name, um, personally. I think there's a need for a character who's the head of the GCPD, which has full of full of corrupt cops, essentially. How does this work? How does it function? Uh, it can only function under a person like this who just wants to get things done and not be in the spotlight from and not be, you know highlighted as being the cause of it she wants to be the one that's highlighted for, for solving cases essentially so yeah and then i think in terms of the love triangle aspect between two women i think that's there it's just with Renny montoya and barbara Keane. yeah uh, and that element of a jealous ex potentially or overly um, protective ex in Renny montoya to barbara yeah and um, i can understand her motives as to why she would want to do that and mm -hmm. um, if she thinks that Jim is ultimately a murderer and a corrupt cop that can't be trusted. But I think at the moment, the uh, maybe untraditional love triangle here is not between two women uh, with their battle over a man, but potentially it's Jim, Barbara, and then Renan Montoya, who is looking in some ways to undermine Jim and Barbara's relationship. Yeah, And maybe, though, having said that, I think you could have the... The use of Dr. Leslie Tompkins can come in and then be this further element that you would have a love quad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we're in a pretty lucky position in the fact that we've read uh, Gotham Central coming into this coming into this TV show. So we were very aware of, of Renna Montoya as a character and very aware that she had this past. I think it came as quite a, quite a surprise in episode three to a lot of people who viewed it. Uh, it came as quite a surprise that there was actually a relationship, not just a friendship, in the past between Barbara Keane and uh, and uh, Renna Montoya. Um, so we're kind of lucky in that sense. But uh, Daniel goes on to say the good, um, and he says, why nobody's really talking about it, but Richard Kind is bringing it. Richard Kind plays the mayor in the show. Um, he says he honestly felt he was the best actor in episode two. And he expected with the sitcom background, he played the character of the mayor's helper in Spin City with Michael J. Fox, a comedy show that ran for a number of years. Um, he felt with this background that he was going to portray the mayor as somewhat silly. Instead, I feel kind of creeped out by him. 
uh, thought I needed a shower and was totally convinced the power-loving political professional. It was a fantastic performance. So, um, I, you know, I, I kind of agree with him. Um, I was a bit dubious about Richard Kind as well, for the same reason the only thing I've really ever seen him in is comedy roles in the past. I think he's doing a great job. I think the, the we talked about the scene between himself and Jim last week, um, where Jim Gordon calls him out on, you know, using this... Uh, the, the issue that's gone on in the episode with the child catchers to displace all the kids of Gotham um, who are on the street, displace them and send them off north. He's using this as his uh, as well, to, to further his political career, essentially. Um, and the response from Richard Kind's character is, as I said, thanks for your feedback, like any good politician would. You know? Yeah, I mean, that was um, that was really good. And I think um, Daniel here has really pulled out something that is is right it's really good certainly um he he did a really good job um in episode two selena kyle definitely yeah thanks for your feedback daniel again and i'm I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback on episode three absolutely and but some feedback from episode three has come in from uh our friend scott fisher and he's basically got i have a prediction about this episode i think over time uh, this episode is going to prove to be one of the pivotal episodes of the whole season. At every turn, Gotham ha- was hitting Jim with how corrupt and out of control it is. People are accusing him of being corrupt, going to Barbara about him being corrupt. Oswald coming back to town and Fish trying to improve her standing in the mob. The whole episode was fantastic. Plus, the vigilante showed up and Bruce took an interest in it. And Jim openly talked about how there would be more and how people had lost faith. It was a smart and well-written episode, which really has me looking forward to what's going to come. That is really interesting because, in part, I actually do agree with Scott. I think there's huge elements here that are um, going to really inform later episodes within this season. And, in fact, as we said about uh, the young Bruce Wayne, and as Scott has pointed out himself, the influences the young Bruce Wayne and what Batman ultimately becomes, which is a detective and a vigilante as seen by the cops, but one that doesn't kill. Um, he's after pursuing the criminals and bringing them to justice, not a revenge killing. And so that is really important. And I, I think there are elements within this, exactly as um, Scott has said, that are going to be really important for what's to come in the season. Even just the introduction of Maroney the introduction of what's to come and and why for the Arkham area of Gotham is really going to be important. And I think the vigilante. The only place I would kind of maybe just pull back from that from Scott was just that the context of the balloon man and some elements of it seemed not to work with those really important elements that it's they seem slightly discordant from one another but otherwise i think i would agree i think there's a lot in this that will be important for the the season yeah yeah absolutely you've heard my thoughts on on the episode at large i do agree with what scott's saying the pieces that will form parts of the next couple of episodes and the rest of the season, I think, are, are, are really fantastic. I loved a lot of those scenes. I think they were really, really enjoyable. I just feel if you have your vigilante show up first, it would have been nice if you just have one vigilante that spreads over a couple of episodes. That might have fixed the episode, this particular episode for me. Uh, but definitely thanks for your feedback, Scott. And obviously, I really, really look, look forward to hearing more from you. And then just quickly, um, we 
got a lovely um, review from Pastor of the Batman uh, on iTunes, mm-hmm. which we really want to thank them for. Um, it's really helpful to get feedback and reviews on iTunes because A, it opens up um, our episodes to other people who may be interested in listening to a podcast about um, the show Gotham. And secondly, it, it ha- just helps um, us to know that we're doing stuff that people are finding interesting and, yeah. and useful. So, again, thank you to the pastor of the Batman. Love that handle. Um, it's a great, great handle, isn't it, <laughs> uh, for the review. Yeah. And as always, if you want to send your feedback into us, I did mention it earlier, but no point, no problem repeating it again. Uh, you can email us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. You can also search for us um with the handle Gotham TV Podcast to leave comments and feedback through uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus. We also have social uh, media handles at uh, Instagram and Flickr as well. So you're more than welcome to to go through those. Thanks very much, and again, as always, for your feedback. Next week's episode is is called Arkham, so I presume we're going to start finding out some more about about Arkham Asylum. I'm really excited about that. Uh, it's directed by T.J. Scott, who has directed a ton of episodes of, of TV shows. Uh, really looking forward to seeing what he brings to the table. Um, and it's written by another one of the executive producers, Ken Woodcuff, uh, is, the, is the guy's name. So kind of looking forward to seeing that. Uh, he's, yep. he's written some episodes of The Mentalist in the past, which was Bruno Heller's show, wasn't it? Yep. Um, so another one of the team uh, writing writing his version of the story here. So looking forward to seeing it. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, it's been great to, to go through this episode of Gotham. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for the next one. But thanks so much for listening. Absolutely. Gotham TV podcast. Do not cross. Alan and Montoya. <laughs> Might have to move back to the UK, John. <laughs> have to take a shit back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> a shit, not a shit. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> That's a job safety issue. Just you know, like safety. now all of a sudden, all the forces and all the money and resources, now all the resource of the force. Yeah. Um, is brought to <laughs> the young Bruce Wayne, and as Scott has pointed out himself, that influences what Batman ultimately influences what Bruce um, influences the young Bruce Wayne and what Batman ultimately becomes, which is a detective. <laughs> <laughs>